0: Welcome to Current Mild. This is Grant's interest rate observer of the air, and I am Jim Grant. And uh, with me, as always, is the uh, the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. And as per usual, Henry French is at the uh, control panel. And today, uh, sitting to my right, uh, directly across from uh, Evan, and to Henry's uh, left is uh, Jeremy Mindich. Great to be here. Yeah, founding... uh, uh, I'm going to call you a partner. of uh, That works. Scopia Cafe. Yeah. You know, I, I um I have I began the day uh, with uh, with three inflation shocks. I bought the usual uh, quartet of newspapers today. It wasn't twelve fifty; it was thirteen fifty. I remember a time when you plunked down twenty-five cents in silver and you got yourself the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Post, and the Daily News. And, okay, that was that was the first. Second was uh, I got my teeth cleaned. What do you think? Worth it, right? Yeah, really good. Yeah, except it was three hundred and twenty-five dollars today, rather than the uh, the prior uh, two seventy-five for uh, cleaning and a uh, and a glimpse in my mouth. That's a privilege the dentist gets. So that's up eighteen percent, which happen eighteen happens to coincide with the cost of uh, one sandwich, egg salad, and uh, and one uh, canister of soup, not filled to the top at uh, Pret, eighteen dollars. So I'm thinking. I'm thinking that this uh, disinflation thing, which we all pray for, is taking its sweet time. Yeah,
1: I, I think you got a bargain. I actually bought uh, lunch at Pret a too—a soup and a sandwich—and they charged me just over twenty bucks, which uh, made me fatter and my wallet lighter. Uh,
0: well, I think you have to be a little bit better at negotiation, effing. <laughs> it's
2: also a sign of the times so that you guys don't need the Downtown Association anymore. Yeah, that's kind of an obscure reference. That but-
0: was that was DTA was uh, was closed uh, during the troubles, and um, reopened not uh, not. I think it's still kind of a soft opening. Hey, the last time I uh, spoke to you on the air, I invited uh, listeners to uh, send me an email for a request, uh, a sample of uh, Grant's story. Some of you did, so I want to thank you for that. I hope you enjoyed them. Uh, but speaking of speaking to you and of you listening to us, um, hey, let us know. Is there anything you particularly want to hear about, you know, topics or any guests you'd like to hear us uh, interview or maybe um, uh, if you're a subscriber to Grants and have questions or would like to know more about something you've read in a recent issue and if, you know, we uh, can come up with an answer, not guaranteed, uh, shoot us an email at podcast at That's podcast at GrantsPub.com. Yeah, so thank you for listening. Um, anyway, uh, so um, we are here, ladies and gentlemen, to talk about buying low and selling high. And we are with a most accomplished practitioner of it in uh, Jeremy Midditch and his firm, Scopia capital. Scopia is from the Latin meaning uh, Scopin. We use it
2: because of the root of microscope. I was thinking about the microscope as a, as a in its day cutting-edge technology and advancement in healthcare. We had an interest in healthcare and technology greater than the average value fund, but you couldn't call your hedge fund group Microscopia, so <laughs> <laughs> we cut it down.
0: So, or it could have been macroscope, yeah. yeah. So Jeremy, I've, I've known Jeremy for uh, more than 20 years. Jeremy and I were uh, fellow practitioners of the uh, value uh, school of buy low, sell high. We were both assisting in a, in a Japanese uh, uh, long only fund. And, uh, yeah, we, you know, we, we started uh, in 1999, Ken Shirley and Alex Porter and, and you, and, and we started in 1999.
2: With all the best intentions. In, or
0: 1998, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, the best intent was to get rich. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, Ken traveled to Japan and, uh, uh, and remained there. And we bought stocks that were trading for less than their net current assets in 1998. And in 2006, they were trading for less than their net current assets having compounded book value along the way, at respectable rate and paying out uh, dividends, much greater than the Japanese uh, 10-year stupid bond yield. And um, it was was instructive and uh, not unrewarding but disappointing in uh, the failure of the famed uh, Graham and Dodd uh, value focus to deliver more substantial results.
2: It was disappointing. It was such a great idea. And uh, uh, the fact that this opportunity existed seemed hard to imagine. And in retrospect, what it taught me, and maybe you as well, is that how managers deploy capital is as important as the capital they have on the balance sheet. And that as investors, we are constantly looking at handing over the responsibility of allocating capital to the managers that we invest in. Just like an investor in our funds uh, gives us that responsibility to pick the best investments in the universe that we look at for them. And in Japan, there was just this unwillingness to use that balance sheet capital in productive ways. It seemed economically impossible that that would happen. But that's exactly what happened.
0: Yeah. Well, the the, the, the story going in was uh, was uh, irresistibly contrary, and and and, and pr- I, I was I, I thought, and still would think, if presented with it, uh, marvelous. You, know, you, you here you have companies that, uh, anyway, not to not to. But let's 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 get back. To Can the I just president. ask a quick question? Did yeah. you ever
2: have you um, ever rerun
0: that screen, or is it too painful to try it? <laughs> I have not. I know. I know some of the some of these companies did get bought out at uh, at substantial premiums to what we were, but I I, I think the payoff was many years after we uh, we we folded. Um, Speaking of, however, uh, as I say, the the present here and here and now the topic is uh, is Scopia and its market neutral strategy. I'm going, to, I'm going to describe this, Jeremy, and you, um, I'm going to take 30 seconds, and you may fill out some of the details being <laughs> rather better informed. But um, Jeremy and his partner, Matsurovich, um, have been at this for uh, rather more than 20 years. And the idea from the beginning uh, was to be long, opportunistically, short opportunistically. And through the uh, the excellence of the, uh, the stock picking, the perception of the stock picking, and uh, was to deliver uh, solid returns um, through thick and thin, and especially thin. The idea was to uh, to be investors, right, and and not and not to be riding waves, not to be throwing money at macroeconomic trends, but to look security by security, uh, having no particular emphasis on a sector or what they call now a factor, and uh, to make money through by dint of uh, microscopic analysis of uh, merits of the business, no?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's even stronger than that in the sense that the typical sort of historic E.W. Jones model of hedge fund investing was something like 100% long and 50% short. And um, to this day, most fundamentally driven long short hedge funds run fairly net long, 20, 30, 50% net long. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you see the correlation of the typical hedge fund to The S&P, it tends to be pretty high, uh, something like 0.8 correlation or so, which is okay if you're outperforming the market, but if you're not outperforming the market, it can be disappointing. Uh, Our strategy from the beginning was to try to create a, a return stream that had no correlation to the market, that had no exposure to, on a meaningful level to sectors or factors, and really create a return that's only based on the difference between the greatness of our longs and the vulnerabilities of our shorts. And so that's really this very disciplined, um, restrictive policy that uh, we chose to take on. And it's been an interesting way to create an investment vehicle that really doesn't look like other hedge funds or the market.
0: Well, especially it did not look like other hedge funds or the market in the recently concluded and for Scopia quite glorious in anything more gratifying than that from the point of view of pure investing.
2: Yeah, it's extremely gratifying. It also comes after several years of pounding our heads against the wall and wondering how is it possible that the market is so upside down. Even yeah. even though we weren't making a bet one way or other on the direction of markets, we, we try to think very rationally about what's an interesting company and what's a not so interesting company. Yeah. What's a defensible business model and what's a not defensible business model. And when we were in this period of interest rates that were effectively negative and um, a fetish for Mi- growth...
0: Microscopic.
2: yeah, <laughs> Microscopic <laughs> interest rates. It just created this level of speculation that uh, was crazy. It wasn't, I would argue that it wasn't even as crazy an equity market as the uh, internet bubble Um, were in some ways even as crazy as the housing bubble of 2008 in the sense that a lot of the equities that were bid up were bid up as a result of great business models that just um, theoretically that were taken to um, uh, absurd levels. And uh, there's a reason why something like a SaaS company trades at a high multiple of revenues. There isn't a reason for it to trade at 25 times revenues. And so um, you took a, a, a model like SaaS, which is, great recurring revenues, high gross margins, but then said, don't worry about making profits, just increase your market share and we'll reward you and you'll be able to raise money at ever higher valuations. And that's where things just went bonkers, where people had no discount rate to to get back to reality because the Federal Reserve was telling you that there was no discount rate. And so it very logically, as a reader of grants would understand, it very logically led to crazy speculation.
1: But one contrast to the dot-com era is um, a lot of the dot-com companies, like they had market caps in the hundreds of millions. And a lot of these SaaS companies had market caps in the tens of billions. And it, it just seemed like the level of froth and kind of speculative securities reached an absurd level, which I, I think was kind of expressed through the 600 or so SPACs that came to market within the 18-month period.
2: Yeah. So the SPAC market was a special corner of the market, I, I think that's right. Um, I think crypto was a special uh, sideline to to everything side hustle. <laughs> side hustle, to everything that was going on in the equity markets. I would say though that in the dot com bubble, there were a lot of companies that were clearly not going to benefit from the scale of the internet that were valued as if they were going to benefit. There were some of those in this most recent bubble as well. There were some companies that tried to have a veneer of cloud or call themselves SaaS. Um, but uh, back in, in 1999, there were a lot of companies that were just building websites that were valued at 15 times revenues. So I think there was there was a, a at least a very strong echo from 1999. And I think In the end um you've seen that there that there are a lot of really interesting software companies that have come back to earth at this point at uh much more attractive uh valuations that um will live to fight another day they they can be profitable there are a lot of businesses in the internet uh bubble that will never survive i mean i'm i started my career shorting companies like saber tech and smart talk telecom and cyber care that just don't exist anymore. Some of these software companies won't exist anymore either. But I think there's actually going to be a higher level of survival than in the than in the internet era.
0: Jeremy, in your year-end letter, you talked about uh, 400 private uh, software companies. By the way, SaaS is a software as a service, no? Yes. Yeah. 400 private uh, software companies with an average private valuation of $3 billion each. So that's $1.2 trillion for a lot of them. And it reminds me of uh, Bitcoin when Bitcoin was feeling better, and these trillion-dollar things just kind of popped up during the during the long era um, of as uh, one of your mentors, uh, Professor um,
2: Mihir Desai.
0: Desai at uh, at Harvard, in the era of magical thinking. Um, but uh, I want to I want to ask you, Jeremy, about the uh, about the not altogether unpleasant five or six years in which you were on the outside looking in. Um, Scopey got off to a a great start. I mean, it started in 2001, no, and and, uh, and and really excelled in 2002, 2003. It must have seemed as if uh, the world was your oyster. And then 2008 again, 2008 and 9, uh, uh, way out in front of everybody else. And uh, the the period of your kind of uh, uh, your sunset uh, uh, sun, by the way, does rise <laughs> in after city. <sitting. laughs> Was um, at, uh, kind of 2015 to 2020, those six years inclusive, and um, and we we uh, grants interest rate observer did write, um, I must say, a very fine essay on Scopia and its difficulties and its prospects. You thought rather rosy, uh, late 2021. In it, you were quoted. Uh, saying that the wind is your at your face, and I, I <laughs> the other day I uh, I read a, a quote from Pablo Picasso, and he said, "The older you get, the stronger the wind blows, and it's always in your face." That is,
2: that's really good. <laughs>
0: I love that. Yeah, but um, you know, so so tell us about the cycles of being smart and then as dumb as a brick. Yeah, it's a it's a it's
2: a humbling business, and it's a business that. Um, doesn't celebrate longevity (laughs) um uh the way other journalism does yeah (laughs) and and you know you could see it in and i'm sure you've seen it in in uh investors that you followed uh who were uh presenters at grants conferences and and subscribers to grants that cohort of funds that started with us around in the aftermath of the internet bubble um there are plenty of funds that existed before, but there were a bunch that started right around 2000, 2001. And so many of them shut down between 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18. And the idea was that it was just too hard to, to do what we were doing. I, I I remember I presented at a grants conference in 2006, um, and the, the theme was, um, don't get short with me. And it was about how most hedge fund investors were giving up on shorting individual stocks. And that that trend just continued into the teens, and a lot of people just decided they couldn't add enough value to uh, continue with the strategy. And so we stuck it out, and we we continued to see that there was uh, interesting opportunity, we thought. Um, And uh, we believed in the way that we invested as a way that we wanted to invest our own money um and uh we were honored to have anyone who wanted to come along for the ride but it was a very difficult period and it's hard for people who are drawn to this uh world that selects for people with great backgrounds and yeah. who have accomplished all kinds of stuff to then all of a sudden be told you're wrong day after day for years so it's not like we were upside we get used down. to it though you know <laughs> Like to say that you like to say that you have this uh, uh, incredible self-deprecation about about uh, being early to things, but y- you know exactly the feeling that you, mm-hmm. you you have this sense that you know you're going to be right, um, and um, you just have to to get through this period that's not making sense and try not to do harm but, to yourself. Yeah,
0: here here is the, here is the temptation that you and Matt must have faced. Uh, uh, fortunately, as as Matt told us in the same story that. Uh, to which I alluded, the one we wrote in, in November, I think of 2021. He said, if we'd known that six years knocking your heads against the stone wall, we probably would not have chosen to do that. But um, uh, as you went through this period, um, you did it in the full knowledge that uh, your long ideas uh, were massively outperforming the S&P. That was as a pure long uh, investing operation you would have been uh, very nearly at the top of the world um, as you are, I think, properly restored to something along those at that altitude now. But was the temptation ever so strong as to be not quite resistible, to relinquish the short side and just to do what you were demonstrably doing so, so well and just to buy stocks? Well, to be clear, We, during that 2015 to 20
2: period, um, we did not massively outperform uh, the S&P. Over our 20 year history, we've significantly outperformed the S&P. During that period, we did not outperform. We outperformed value indices, but Mm -hmm. we didn't outperform the S&P. And it was funny because I was on a panel at a conference uh, during that period, around 2018, with two very high profile investors who, we're talking back and forth to each other about how this is a period where you don't want to be invested in off the beaten path, hard to understand businesses. This is the time where you want to be in growth tech companies with predictable growth. Like and, everybody else. Exactly. Yeah. But it was that was exactly what he was saying. And I thought to myself, wow, that would be great. It was too bad we didn't do that. It's too bad that we didn't own Fang stocks. And, But we felt like where we add value to our investors is coming up with ideas that they couldn't come up with themselves. And not just for the sake of being contrarian, but because we should be able to add more value that way. But during that period, that was not the case. Over the course of our history, we've added the same amount of alpha, the outperformance, however you want to define it. Um, uh, Our longs have outperformed the index by about the same amount as our shorts have underperformed the index. So uh, we are actually more distinctive to most investors for our Short underperformance than our for our long outperformance.
0: What uh, what was your maximum asset under management figure?
2: About five billion. Yeah.
0: And you're now more about one and a half billion. Yeah. So that that must have been um, a thing too.
2: It was a thing. It was a thing to see it rise. Um, and on some level, it probably made us a little less nimble in how we could identify opportunities and get in and out of positions. Um, It also led us to a more sort of insidious problem, which uh, we got into, again, with all the best intentions, which was hiring lots of people to help us. Why not have more smart people sitting around the table? We found that we really enjoy cultivating talent, developing people, teaching people a method of investing, but we didn't realize how important it was to keep that team really tight and and cohesive and um, that smaller actually is often more energy and 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 better efficiency than a bigger group where it's easy to get kind of lost in the in the shuffle.
0: Hold on a second. So, uh, like um, Evan, you really don't. <laughs> so, with these, with these, with these, the supernumeraries who helped you win that indoor marathon at a time of two forty four some of those are some some of those uh supernumeraries are no longer with us well see that's, that's a, there's a plus and minus to these yeah. things you know yeah. you can't win those races without yeah. uh, you know without horses yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: okay that could come back to hurt us
1: in the midst of the uh 2020 2021 bubble i spoke to one investor he was a former member of the value tribe and he was long a certain stock that i thought might have problems and when i talked to him about it, he goes you know You might be right, but if you're right, the stock's going to fall a little bit, but their IP is so valuable, somebody's going to buy them at a higher price. Or I could be right, and the stock's just going to go up. And he told me, every time I've looked at value for the last five years, I've lost money, so I don't even look at value anymore. How do you stick to your knitting knowing that in the past, relative value, uh, not relative value, but... Absolute value has worked. uh, Market neutral has worked. And how do you talk to your LPs to keep them on the same page as you? Because you have to educate them because they're getting the same signal that you are, which is that this doesn't work anymore and that we might be in a new paradigm like that other investor uh, thought we were. I think for us, the key
2: is to, first of all, have a, a broad but not too broad view of what value is. From the very beginning, we thought we had this um, what seemed sort of novel at the time approach to looking at value in healthcare and technology companies that would be together, maybe half of our portfolio. But at the, in 2001, that was a, a, a large weighting in those sectors relative to other value funds. Today, it's not. But we, we started with this idea that if we're going to look at those sectors, we have to have a, a, a little bit of a broad view of how you define value and be willing to look out a year or two, let's say, To see a very different picture for this company than you see today. Technical Graham and Dodd investing is don't talk to me about growth, I only want to know what is it worth today and um, what are the assets in the ground, not what might happen in the future. So we've always been willing to look a little bit into the future. That said, it has to be within the next 18-24 months that we're going to see a very significant change in the outlook for this business that will lead to a fundamental intrinsic value calculation that makes our longs 50% undervalued and our shorts 25 50% overvalued. And so we never enter into a, a, a trade where we think well, I don't think it's really worth it. I wouldn't want to own this company, but it's, the next couple quarters are going to be good or the market's telling us that that this is a, a, an interesting asset, so let's just go along for the ride. We've always been completely consistent in that approach to how we look at stocks. So we never had to explain to our investors a new way of thinking or, or uh, uh, apologize for uh, what we were doing because it, it's very clear, we're very transparent with them that that's how we look at the world. I think the, the thing that's hard is how do you fight the urge to switch and become like this investor that you're talking about who was willing to change his stripes in order to try to uh, match the market. And um, we we just don't do that. We try not to be stubborn. We're not arrogant value investors who uh, will say the market's a bunch of idiots. They don't know anything. We're the smart ones. When a stock goes against us, we're gonna add even more. We're, we're very sort of willing to be humble about the idea that the market might know something that we don't know. But we're not going to Make decisions based on what we think the market wants to see, as opposed to what we really believe.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, the labor market is still tight, which uh, brings me to our our honored sponsor, Indeed, uh, agents of influence. Um, no, I was <laughs> I was reading some piece of copy. It's not part of the ad. Okay, gonna start this again. Oxford agents. <laughs> All right. Okay. So ladies and gentlemen, as you have been hearing and reading the labor market is still rather tight, which brings me to Indeed, uh, our honored sponsor. Um, Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview and hire all in one place. You must not spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. So find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Yeah, who doesn't? So Indeed's US data show over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description, the moment they sponsor a job. So this says here, call to action, must read. All right, Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you must make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed you only pay for quality applications that match your must have job requirements. So Indeed knows that finding people with the right skills makes all the difference when you're hiring a team of one. It uh, knows hiring needs to be cost effective when you're running your own business. It knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. So visit Indeed.com slash grant, G-R-A-N-T, to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash grant, Indeed.com slash grant. Terms and conditions apply, and when do they not? Cost for application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need indeed. So we have uh, been through this uh, period, uh, as uh, Mahir Desai put it in his op-ed piece in the New York Times, a period of magical thinking, which, by the way, which periods, by the way, have, have been, have been uh, recurrent over the course of market history the past 200 years. Nothing exactly new about magical thinking. It, it, um, it, it's cyclically recurring. But we have been through a subduzi of a period of magical thought. And uh, there appears to be a reaction against that. And where does this leave you now uh, in the field of opportunity? Could you help us and our listeners understand um, what interests you now from the point of view of both long and short ideas? Let's start with long side first. Maybe some of these um, uh, these uh, victims of uh, of knee-high interest rates, not yet properly sized interest rates, but knee-high interest rate. Maybe some of these victims now um, cast down as they have been in price and value are appealing. Do you see much of that?
2: Yeah. Uh, so, so I think what's interesting, and I love that article by Mahir Desai, and I encourage people to go check it out on the Times website, because he really captures how crazy the period was and how how outside of normal economic history the period was and some of the same frustrations that we had trying to explain not necessarily to our investors but to people that we just meet in our lives about um, why the way we think about investing still makes sense when it seems so obvious that um, that uh,
0: anybody ever call you arrogant <laughs>
2: <laughs> no um, but um, I do think that that uh, what's happened as a result of this increase in interest rates that, as you implied, are not historically high interest rates, but just higher than zero, has had an incredible tight correlation with the fall of this crazy era of speculation. So who would have thought that the owners of Kathy Wood's ARK ETF of innovative tech companies would have such tight inverse correlation with interest rates. Do you really think that the owners of the ARK ETF are sitting there saying, I'm gonna hold this thing as long as the 10-year doesn't peak above 2%? I mean, it, like that that can't possibly be right, right? So how do you explain it?
0: Yeah. Um, I think it works not from observation, but through the tightening of financial conditions that uh, uh, that uh, sets the kind of um, topples the uh, the sand pile
2: yeah and there's there's just this tightening of the supply there's a there's um the 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 money that went into that was created by quantitative easing the ebbs back as uh quantitative tightening um in all kinds of different forms and there's just less money out there for that kind of speculation but it's a, it's sort of a, a of all the uh sort of um invisible hands, yeah. it's it's a pretty but amazing you know, example the,
0: the, of it. The Chicago Federal Reserve Bank issues something called a, a National Financial Conditions Index, and you can look at it on the, this wonderful website the St. Louis Fed has called FRED, F-R-E-D. And the uh, Chicago National Financial Conditions Index is actually registering rather easier than normal uh, conditions right now, so is relatively stringent as things now feel. Um, with a two-year Treasury yielding upwards of almost five percent, still it's 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 it has scarcely begun.
2: Scarcely begun to to reach uh, a, a normalized level. In well, England.
0: to to meet uh, a cyclically stringent state of being right. in finance. That uh, that, that makes
2: sense to me. And we are not we are avid readers of Grant's interest rate observer, but we are not macroeconomists. We have our our armchair opinions about how the economy works and where it's heading. But our feeling is that we're coming out of this period where there was this this way overdue correction in interest rates that had a profound effect on the growthiest companies in the market. So one thing that we've talked about in our quarterly letters over the last few years is this curve of software companies, high growth software companies and, and what their multiple of revenues has been over the last 15 years. And it was pretty steady for the kind of top quartile of, of high-growth software companies to trade at 10 to 12 times revenues for a long period. And those revenues were growing over time, and so those stocks were going up over time. But over 2020, 2021, you just saw this parabolic move of uh, uh, multiples of revenue go from 12 times revenues to 15 times revenues to 20 to 25 to 30 times revenues. And it was that's where the real craziness was, this, this just complete dislocation with the gravitational attraction of the planet Earth, and now it's come back, and it's back down to 11, 12 times revenues. Growth is, for many of these companies, slowing because they've been forced to pull back on the growth at any cost mentality that their stakeholders were allowing them to subscribe to, and people are trying to figure out what do we make of these businesses now? And in the wreckage, there are a lot of companies that are trading at four or five times revenues instead of the average of 10 to 12 and, um, the, the, uh, peak of 25 to 30 times. And so it's been an interesting time to look in that, um, in that wreckage for a broadly defined sense of value. So if you have a, a software company trading at four or five times revenues, it might sound expensive compared to a widget company, Mm -hmm. but, if you have 80 plus percent gross margins and you believe that you should get to a normalized operating margin of 20 to 30%, um, it could be extremely attractive to buy a company at four times revenues or five times revenues. And so the the real interesting opportunity right now is to try to find what's out there right now that really has a good business model. Everyone's saying, oh, we could generate free cash flow if you just let us, but no one believes them. And they need to, in order to do that, they need to reduce their growth expectations. And so the growth investors aren't happy and the value investors aren't happy. And that creates an opportunity to to wade in and try to figure out where are the interesting uh, business models that people don't appreciate are really great business models, but they haven't had a chance to prove them yet. And then there, are, so th- there's a, a software company that we've been investing in recently called uh, Elastic that mit- fits that criteria. It's trading at five times uh, revenues. Um, uh, one of the leading companies in enterprise search and and uh, tools for observing the health of, of uh, companies' uh, networks and infrastructure. Um, it's an interesting business that um, is very widely used. It's like um, uh, Linux, uh, uh, Red Hat, um, MongoDB, a bunch of other uh, tech companies that started as as uh, freeware and um, have become open source um, uh, code that have become uh, built into a interesting, defensible for profit um, uh, model of of managing the business, and so we think it's it's down from. Um, uh, uh, it's down probably 65% from its highs, and it's trading at a, a multiple where we think uh, the market doesn't understand how valuable their technology really is.
0: Elastic, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, the listeners to this podcast aren't listening for, you know, they want their money's worth. What are they paying?
2: About zero. Oh, but um, but at the same time, we're also, we're also interested in companies like Temper Sealy Mattresses, which trades at... Fifteen times does, revenues. That,
0: does it, doesn't it strike you odd that everywhere you look, there's a mattress advertisement? Yeah. The subways seem to be full of people who want to go to sleep. Yeah. It just, it's just everyone does what, it. What's the Casper, right? The, Casper yeah. was a was a, one of these um, very hot names, and we, I think the, Casper even am I right advertised on this podcast?
1: Uh, they paid us, yeah.
0: And they didn't do well. I don't think they ever made a profit. It's a tough business, and this is this is the thing
2: that's really interesting. So one of our partners. Uh, Jason Taub was just an incredible guy and great investor, spent uh, a couple days two weeks ago at the National Mattress Convention. Were either of you there? Uh, We we did not take it to the mattresses, no. (laughs) So he went to meet with the various players in the mattress industry. Seems like the most boring industry in the world. No, no, no. (laughs) Please tell us (laughs) more. But it's an industry that is going through like crazy tectonic shifts in um, in share. Uh, Serta Simmons is going bankrupt, the second leading um, uh, player in the industry. Temper Sealy is taking share. Uh, there's questions about one of the largest retailers, mattress firm, and whether they're going to be able to survive or whether they're going to have to tie up with one of the, the companies. And by going out into a world where there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding there's there's a lot of uh questions about who's going to want to buy a mattress in a difficult environment you came out of COVID where people were were so focused on building their nest and home improvement and now that's over so so shouldn't this be a terrible time for the mattress industry it is the mattress industry is in a a mattress depression it's it's down not only from the peak of COVID, but from the is it flat
0: on its back <laughs> that was a great, yeah, that was well, a great just, just, just a little yeah, something. Yeah, no, it's really good.
1: What happened to all the zero interest rate competitors, the, the Caspers, the Purples, who never made a profit but were able to raise money from venture capital to sell mattresses at a loss to consumers through they the didn't mail? make a profit. Are they some still here? Are. are they disappearing?
2: Purples is still holding on. They're they're getting some traction at Mattress Firm, but Temper Sealy is run by just a, an outstanding CEO. It's growing uh, at all different price points. It's managing its profitability extremely intelligently. It's thinking about returns on invested capital the way we'd want to think about returns on invested capital. And it it is surviving what is a very difficult environment for the industry because they're innovating in a time when other people aren't innovating and they have a profitable business model. So, we like the idea that we can look at companies like Sealy, that is more like a typical value company. It was it started the year trading at 12 times troughish earnings and it's had a like a lot of stocks so far this year had a a a good run um but even now we think it's trading at a, a very low multiple of 18 to 24 months out earnings and um uh that the world assumes that they're gonna be a victim of this continued hangover of um, uh, excess supply and weak demand for mattresses. When in fact, um, you're already starting to see that unit demand is is strengthening. It's not rapidly accelerating, but we're we're sort of bottoming out. And the more we start heading towards some sort of even slight inflection, they're gonna benefit disproportionately because they're so well managed.
0: Yeah, oh, okay. So, well, you know, uh, I want to ask. Okay, I've always wanted ahead. to ask you this. I think I might have asked you about 2003, but I want to ask you. So, Jeremy, you started out uh, as a freelance journalist. I did. And then you became a short seller and, a, uh, and an investor. Uh, what is the more precarious of these two occupations? Um, typing for a living with no certain knowledge of where that copy might wind up finding a buyer, on the one hand or buying low and selling high insecurities that the world wants you not to own or to sell. Which one of those is, is, the, is, the, is the less stable line of business? I, I'm intrigued by the personality type I see sitting across from this table.
2: It, it is very similar, I would say that. I would say that the, the idea of, of looking for a narrative that's not well understood was the way I approach journalism and uh, it's the way we approach short-selling. I think that what I like about short-selling as opposed to journalism is that for journalism, it was very hard to find people who cared about the stories that I wanted Ain't to tell. Ain't that the case? <laughs> Ain't
0: it so? <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, but you at least have a, a, a many-decade-long history of publishing great stories and and you control that process so you can you can tell people that the housing crisis is nigh even if it's a year early uh, but no one's gonna stop you from telling that story uh, I found it very frustrating to come up with interesting story ideas and not be able to find a place I, I I had a great time being a writer and I got to write about really interesting things and politics and human experience but um, I love the fact that in the stock market, you can have an opinion, uh, about the future of a business and no one can stop you from making an investment or, or shorting a stock. As long as you have the capital to do it, you can get into the market and, and express that view. And if you're right, generally you will be rewarded at some point. Um, and, and as long as you're nimble enough to stay alive, um, which that is the the hard part about short selling is that you can be blown out of the water in a way that in journalism, you're just ignored. Um, <laughs> but, uh, there's, um, I think there is, uh, a real value in that kind of journalistic discipline of evaluating sources, digging into information, questioning the, the, uh, reliability of the information that you're handled handed by, um, sort of a a established, interested parties. parties, Exactly. And that's something that when we hire people, we're really one of the most important things to us is finding people who are willing to think broadly about what is the truth and what is, what is, uh, what's the future going to look like? Um, it's, it's not, what's the future going to look like in 10 years, but let's do lots and lots of research and digging, we'll look at every financial report you can find, of course, but we'll also talk to so many people in the mattress industry or the software industry to understand what's going to drive demand for this product or service and find a view that's really different than what the rest of the world sees. And a lot of the time we don't see something that different. And so we move on to something else. But when we can find something that's really different and, and can stand up to that kind of level of scrutiny, then it becomes exciting.
0: Well, you know, there's a story, Jeremy, they tell about um, a, a tourist in Midtown walking down the street, and he sees a guy carrying, a, looks like a trumpet case. He says to him, hey, uh, so, uh, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the guy with the trumpet case, well, practice, man, practice. But in the case of uh, Skopje, which has its headquarters at Carnegie Hall, the way to get to Carnegie Hall, is through uh, hard, self-disciplined thinking, uh, tireless research, and uh, above all, self-confidence and perseverance in one's own capacity to uh, uh, to contribute and to survive in an environment that is often made most hostile by forces that you can't control. And no matter how many anathemas you hurl at them, they seem not to notice.
2: That's exactly us.